Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe. And I'm Dr Keo Davis, Senior Research Associate on Negotiating the Future. Today, to start off the series, we're looking at the negotiations. We're delighted to welcome our guests, both of whom were involved at close quarters. Stéphane Derink was Senior Advisor of Michel Barnier, Chief EU Negotiator for Brexit and responsible for public engagement strategy. He has wide experience in the Commission and is also an academic. He completed a PhD at the European Union Institute, has been a professor at the College of Europe since 2003, and teaches on EU governance at the University of Turin. Dan Ferry has a BA from Trinity College, an MA from the University of Galway, and studied in France at Bordeaux 4. Dan worked at the College of Europe Foundation before joining the Commission. Before taking up his position as spokesperson for the EU-UK negotiations, financial services, taxation and customs, he served as press assistant to the spokesperson for financial services in 2015 and press officer for Brexit between November 2016 and December 2019. Welcome to both Stefan and Dan. So the EU27's response to the result in, of the referendum in the UK was shock, but not surprise. And there was strong demonstration of unity between the institutions and between member states in the joint statements on the 24th of June 2016. What was the source of that solidarity in your view? And what explains why it remained intact through the two sets of negotiations? You're right to say that there was shock, but, but not surprise. I mean, some... Some in the Commission, including Jean-Claude Juncker, are on the record for saying they, they had expected uh, even a, a leave vote to, to win. Of course, we were following the opinion polls uh, in the run-up to, to the referendum. Uh, there has been a strong um, process, or there has been a, a process of, of close cooperation and preparation between the, the 27 Donald Tusk, Jean-Claude Juncker, before the referendum already in terms of how we would react to the, any possible outcome of the referendum. And I would explain the unity and the solidarity that you referred to by referring to a strong sense of responsibility of EU leaders for the European project, and that this was an existential challenge, a time when the national election results were also looking very gloomy in terms of a number of elections coming up in terms of potentially gloomy for the European Union as well. Um, and so there was a great sense of, of responsibility to reaffirm the value of European integration and, and, and the value of working together and European solidarity and, and European unity. For me, that was the most important thing throughout the process. Of course, you could say from a national interest perspective, it makes sense to stick together as well. I mean, the solidarity was strong, but also expressed itself then in the 27 backing the fishery countries or the 26 backing Ireland in terms of avoiding a hard border or the 26 backing Spain on what it wanted in terms of Gibraltar or, and you can multiply those examples. So it was of course better to stick together from, from the perspective of defending national interests. Then the second element beyond European leaders was Michel Barnier and his method, I would say. The first thing he did was in October, November, was visit all the prime ministers in the capitals, talk to them, uh, go through a collective 
learning process as well in terms of the approach, in terms of process of the negotiations, in terms of principles of substance. And, and so all of that has, has contributed to that unity in my view. Thanks, Stefan. Daniel, did you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to say, and similar to what Stefan said, you know, this was a first. We didn't have a textbook or some sort of manual to say, this is how you do Brexit, and this is how the negotiations are going to run. So there was that unity there was also um, because it was a, it was a learning process uh, as well for from our side. And you know, similar to what Stefan says, you know, we have politics too. You know, politics isn't just the reserve of, of London. Um, we have our own challenges and our own interests and our own, um, you know, pulling factors and pushing factors. So there was that responsibility that was there. Um, it just made everybody realize, okay, we need to make a success out of this somehow. And I think also people realize on the EU side, you know, we always say that we regret Brexit um, and we regret it because we think it's a, it has negative consequences. And I think everybody quite swiftly and early on realized that there are going to be negative consequences. So how do we minimize those negative consequences? And that was a very kind of immediate decision, I think, an immediate reflection by, by, by people on the EU side is like, how do we minimize that? And we minimize that by sticking together. Um, and I think that was, you know, one of definitely one of the, the unifying factors over the, over the past four years. Well, thank you both for a comprehensive introduction there. We constantly read in the UK press about tensions amongst the EU 27, uh, despite what we've been talking about, what you've been saying, with Germany the good cop and France the bad cop. Um, is that how you saw it? Well, we also read these things, but it's not how we saw it. <laughs> I mean, we often read screaming headlines of newspapers, certain newspapers at least in, in the UK, about the unity breaking down, about this prime minister not being happy with something or some capital putting pressure and clashing with another capital. This was never how, how we experienced this in, in the commission and in the negotiating team. And of course, you were working for those capitals. That's also something that maybe not everyone in the UK always appreciated how we were working for the 27 and of course had always our antennas open to the 27 and to all the signals they were giving. Now, of course, member states didn't always see things in the same way on specific issues. There was never divergence on the big picture. And when you would discuss very specific issues, there would be differences of opinion or nuances. But that was only normal. And, um, and that was also then just an invitation to work on that unity and to iron things out, which is what the Commission is, is used to doing. I think what the UK perhaps underestimated, both in the media and in terms of the titles you referred to, and in some part of the political decision-making or leaders, is how, what was underestimated, I think, is how once you put yourself outside of the club, how you no longer have influence on that club. Because some of these headlines were inspired by people in London saying, we've worked with that capital and, and we, we, they came closer to us, which of course was, was not true in terms of how the, the process unfolded. Because the capitals would stick together with each other rather than, than tune into what London was saying. I think that's correct. And, you know, a, a lot of the articles were, were obviously, you know, massively over-exaggerated. Um, but one of the interesting things that I saw over the, over the past four years, you know, was this presumption that in every single capital in the European Union, the only thing that they were talking about was Brexit. 
Uh, and, you know, okay, maybe the day after the referendum and at certain points throughout the process, yes, of course, it was a really, really big thing, but it wasn't the day-to-day -day business of what we were doing. Um, and particularly as, as time went on and, and various other issues, um, we were faced with various other issues. Great. Thanks very much. Um, you, you were both recruited to the task force um, that was created to negotiate the Article 50 um, process. Um, you both recruited very early on, in, um, early on there. And I just wanted you to explain what the mission of the task force was in, in your understanding, say a bit about its organisation and how it all um, interacted with the rest of the commission. And, and how did it prepare for the triggering of um, Article 50 by the UK? Well, to pick up on Dan's point first, one of the missions of the task force was to insulate Brexit in the commission in a way, or to isolate in a specific task force, so that the rest of the commission could pay its attention to what made the headlines in the rest of the EU, which was migration or climate change or things related to the euro and monetary integration and other aspects that were on the agenda of, of national governments during the time the UK was focused only on Brexit. So Michel Barnier's function also was to be a shield in that sense for President Juncker and his team to keep Brexit in that task force and to make sure that the president and, and all the departments of the commission could focus on what was called the positive agenda of European integration and, and the next steps of the European project. Then I think what was very important very early on was that President Juncker gave Michel Barnier the authority to work with all the commission departments. If you then look at how the task force worked internally in the commission, so that he had direct authority to mobilize the different departments and work together in, across the departmental uh, units, so to say, uh, to make sure the Commission will have a coherent approach on, on, on the Brexit challenges. And the first task that, that we had and that the task force did was to review each and every single EU policy and look at it from every possible angle of the UK and Brexit and what possible scenarios could be. So we started in our first assignment, so to say, to work together with all the departments on the review of the whole, um, the whole EU acquis, so to say, the, the set of rules and, and regulations and policies that, that the EU has in place. Then the, the other part of the question is what the triggering of Article 50 and um, how did it prepare for that? Well, we prepared for that with the people of the council, with our colleagues in the council and with the member states. We prepared for it by going to all the capitals, Michel Barnier did that, um, talked to all the prime ministers. Large delegations of national ministries came to see us, large 10 to 15 people from different ministries to talk us through the way they saw a range of issues from social security to customs to single market issues. And if I can just come in there uh, just very briefly on, you know, it, it's quite easy to forget what it was like back then. We all know the words backstop and protocol and, you know, um, withdrawal agreement and trade and cooperation agreement. But we didn't have all of those things at the, at the very, very beginning. And just a very quick point on, on, on communication and how we spoke publicly. You know, um, President Juncker, Michel Barnier, I think, adopted a quite intelligent way and how we were to communicate on Brexit in that we weren't going to be communicating every single day. We weren't going to be uh, providing all of these running commentaries and engaging in the kind of the, the mad media 24-7 cycle. Um, but that we were going to do things kind of very calmly. And 
calming people down was actually quite important at the very beginning of all of this process. And it's not, it wasn't an easy task, you know, uh, and, that, and that's where the, the transparency comes into all of this. We, we really adopted a, a really huge transparency policy, ensuring that we would publish things, we would explain things, we would talk people through what was happening in the negotiation rounds, but then everything in between we'd stop, you know, it was when we had something to say, we would say something. But when we didn't, we didn't engage in all of the, the uh, hyperbole and all of the, the kind of exaggerated stuff in the press. So I think that was that was an important point at the beginning of the whole process, just to calm people down. And that was really important. Uh, yeah, very, very, very interesting. I mean, it was it was terrible. I can I, I can see that. I just wanted to pick up on, on something that Stefan said um, in, in, in his last answer, which was about sequencing. And um, this was this turned out to be very, very important in, in, in the course of the negotiations. And, and one could argue that you know, one of the issues has actually you know, proved to be perennial. But I just wondered where the idea came from and, and what it meant in practice. Um, but also, if I can, if I can add, how, why did the UK, do you think, find it difficult to, to swallow or accept? Well, the idea came from Article 50, in a way, and the way it's formulated. I mean, Article 50 says, as soon as the letter of notification has come from the member state that intends to withdraw, there's a two-year process to conclude a withdrawal agreement, taking into account a future relationship. And then you need a new legal basis to, dis- to, to negotiate a future relationship, which the EU can only adopt once, once that member state has left, so once the UK. So the UK needed to leave first before we could formally negotiate a future relationship. Now, some people would say, well, you could, of course, informally start these negotiations and uh, you, you, could, you, you could advance and you could advance those things in parallel. Um, I don't think it was in our interest to do so um, because once it issue we absolutely wanted to avoid was that the issue of the money, the financial settlements or the, the debt that the, the UK had to the EU budget, what its legal obligations were in terms of paying what it had promised to pay, would not be an issue that would be outstanding at the time when the future relationship had to be negotiated. I think it was clear from the EU side that we had to take the things in the right order and that first we had to create a situation of trust between the EU and the UK, that we would know that the UK would honor all its obligations from the past before we would discuss a future. I think that made that made perfect sense from, from the perspective and um, of having a rational and, and, and sound negotiation process. And so in that sense, the, the sequencing also comes from, from that particular angle. Okay, great. So, so, I mean, from your point of view, Article 50 had a very specific purpose. It came to an end, and then there's another provision and that can be read straight from straight from the treaty. Can I ask if that if that was a controversial reading within the within the Commission or between institutions? Or? Well, it was more controversial with the UK, of course, where some people said, "Well, we should wrap up everything in, in two years," whereas on our side, from the very beginning, we thought a, a transition period would would be would be unavoidable in in, in a way. Um, and so we, the UK, of course. Saw, saw this issue in terms of its diminished leverage, allegedly, in terms of uh, discussing or uh, negotiating a future relationship, which is exactly why the EU did, wanted the sequencing, because the EU did not want to be confronted with a situation where, you know, the, the citizens' rights would be taken hostage over an issue in terms of the, the future relationship. So we, we thought it was politically rational and, and, and legally sound to, to separate these two uh, and to have, therefore, phase one, uh, wrapped up in the first stage and then and then go to go to phase two and I think we were right because 
As soon as we wrapped up phase one, the UK engaged in some backtracking in terms of what it had committed to. So uh, there was a risk at least of backtracking in terms of public statements by, by UK ministers. And I think we were absolutely right with the benefit of hindsight to sequence that. Also to avoid that, um, that's a bit with the benefit of hindsight, I must say, speaking about Ireland, that Ireland would become a bargaining chip in terms of the future relationship, or rather the Northern Ireland and Irish border would become that bargaining chip, which is how, how we clearly saw uh, the UK approach to, from a number of people, at least in the UK, to using that border in terms of getting a better future relationship with the EU as a whole, which is something, again, we, we did not want to, to mix up because we thought withdrawal issues have to be settled for the merit of, of, of the withdrawal issue. Ireland was going to be my next question. Actually, I just wondered how it um, how it how it um, emerged as an issue and how it how it developed into the most difficult um, issue in that in the first phase. I mean, why why was that? And and you know, what were the various solutions um, for how it might be resolved? And why did we we end up with um, with not the backstop but another another solution? I think on this one, I mean, why did it develop into the most difficult uh, question? Well, it's because it is the most difficult question. It's it, it's it's really there that um, the big decisions related to Brexit and the big choices that needed to be made had to be made. Um, because you have an island, um, a very beautiful island, I would add, uh, where you have two different jurisdictions and two different regulatory areas. Thankfully, because of the European Union, both being members of the European Union, um, and the, thankfully, due to the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement, there's no hard border on the island of Ireland, and the peace process had been had been progressing and is progressing quite well. Uh, but there you have the choice. If the UK is going to leave the Single Market and Customs Union, if it does not want to remain uh, aligned to our rules, you're going to be faced with consequences. And I think, you know, there are, and there were voices very early on, I mean, well before the referendum as well, I definitely know in Ireland um, and, and other places, this was an issue that was raised, although funnily enough, it wasn't the issue during the referendum uh, across the UK, but it is definitely one of the most complex ones. And if you go back through history and, you know, follow on what happened from the referendum throughout the rest of 2016, early 2017, you start seeing quite quickly that the the issue regarding Northern Ireland um, becomes you know front and center from our side uh, and questions and, and choices start bubbling up you know how, how you start and how you have to deal with these things and it became quite obvious quite early on as well that technical fixes you know were not going to be the big solution here. Uh, you needed to have a political solution. Uh, and this required an awful lot of effort and an awful lot of, um, you know, hard work and research and, and discussions. Um, and you see that in the very first European Council guidelines that were given to us in early 2017. You know, the, um, the question about Northern Ireland was of paramount importance. You know, that, that, those were the words that were used. Um, and you also see Michel Barnier, you know, went to, went to Ireland a few times. He spoke uh, in front of the Joint Houses of the Oireachtas, so the, the Parliament. Now, ultimately, as time went on, we were reflecting on what needed to be done. And it became clear that, okay, we could try and find these imaginative, creative solutions as time went on, but we needed some form of insurance policy. We needed some form of backstop uh, in case those creative, imaginative solutions uh, could not be found later down the road. Fast forward 
in time and you, you eventually come to the series of votes in the House of Commons, you know, the, it, and all the various different uh, political developments in London that, that, that this solution was not going to work. Uh, fast forward another couple of months and we have a new prime minister. Um, and, you know, throughout the whole process, and there's loads of various different ups and downs and turns uh, over the four years. So in a non-bureaucratic way, we're not just lawyers, you know, writing down these words without thinking of the ramifications. I think imaginative, creative solutions uh, were needed. Uh, and we, and I think we, we found those solutions. You've spoken about the defence of the um, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, could, you, could you also say a, a, a bit about why the border is so important to the um, to the EU as a as a sort of open frontier to the single market. Could you say something about that? There's two things here. Um, maybe I, I misunderstood the question, but um, first of all, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, the EU isn't isn't a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. Okay, um, we were not involved in in the peace talks at the at the time. But the fact that Ireland and the UK were both members of of the EU helped massively in bringing forward that process from 1998 onwards and ensuring that there were, there isn't a hard border on on the island of Ireland. But at the end of the day, if once the UK left the EU, including Northern Ireland, um, well, then that's a third country. It's no longer part of the single market. Um, so the solution needed to be you know, found. How do we ensure that we no longer have a hard border on the island of Ireland, but at the same time, we um, ensure that the, the single market itself is protected? Because you, you, you can't hide from the fact that it has left the EU and there's now a new reality uh, and there has to be new, new, new um, solutions found for that. Great. Okay. Thanks. Um, and I just, I just wondered how, um, how you know, looking back now, um, how how smooth you you would see the pathway to the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration um, compared with other negotiations you've been involved in. Was it was it straightforward? Was it just was it normal, or was it a bit more um, difficult and tricky than you're used to in the Commission? On the withdrawal agreement first, and then the political declaration. I think on the withdrawal agreement, if you look back, it, it took six months to this, basically not to find the withdrawal agreement, but to define the parameters for the, the three trickiest issues, citizens' rights, financial settlement, and avoiding the hard border on the island of Ireland. So that's quite quick in a way, given the political complexity as well of the Northern Irish, Irish uh, trade-off in terms of Brexit and how that would work there, in terms of the, the political rhetoric in the UK on the financial settlement. To settle it in the first six months is, is quite a, a rapid achievement in a way. Of course, there were rocky moments in terms of the, the path you were, we were walking. There were, it was not always easy, but if you look back now, we, we came quite quickly to a, to a conclusion of phase one, I, I would say. Partly because the UK changed quite a bit of its in, initial positions as well in terms of the financial settlement and, and citizens' rights. Uh, compared to what it had been saying before we, we started negotiating. It became a bit more complicated then to agree on the text of the withdrawal agreements that took longer, in particular on the protocol, obviously. And that dominated 2018 for me and eclipsed quite a bit of the time we could have spent on discussing the future relationship. Now, when Dominic Raab would come to, to Brussels, it would mostly be about, about the Irish-Northern Irish border. Uh, more than about the future relationship, even by that time we thought we would be in full swing focusing on the future relationship in, in terms of the initial timetable we, we had in mind. You say, how does it compare to other international negotiations? I think the biggest difference is that here we had this ticking clock that Michel Barnier used to refer to, 
uh, that we knew that if there was no agreement by, by the end of a two-year process, it would be a cliff edge. And none of the two parties wanted that cliff edge or wanted to fall down that cliff. So on the political declaration, it was difficult and easy at the same time, I would say. I mean, it was difficult because the checkers white paper asked for the impossible on the economic relationship. But we accommodated that in the political declaration by safeguarding all the interests of the EU in terms of the integrity of the single market, the border checks that you need in terms of customs and all the rest of it, while putting some aspirational language that would then accommodate the UK's desire to have that bespoke model that Theresa May was looking for all the time in terms of the UK's economic relationship um, with, with the single market. Great, thanks very much. Um, and um, just moving on to the um, to the negotiations on the on the future relationship, um, the task force model proved so effective for the first set of negotiations that the European Council agreed that it should um, be adopted for the second set. And again, headed by uh, Michel Barnier, I just wondered how different its, its mission was, and was there any change in its way of working? I think you're right um, in that it was an effective way of, uh, of doing business, of uh, of running a negotiation, and um, we continued working exactly the same way that we did beforehand. Um, we had a task force, albeit with a, a different name, um, the UK task force, and it worked in yeah exactly the same way as beforehand. You had a group of people. It was much bigger now. Okay, we're talking about a very different type of negotiation with a much wider set of subjects, but the the core principles were the same. Everything was done, you know, centrally with the task force helping out with uh, all of the different uh, departments in the commission. Um, you had the negotiations being conducted in kind of the same transparent way as, as beforehand. Anisha Barnier continuing the same uh, working methods in briefing all of the EU institutions, member states, traveling to capitals, uh, listening to, to stakeholders and all of the rest. So it continued more or less the same way uh, as before. So what difference did COVID um, and the pandemic make to, to the negotiations? How, how did it affect the... I don't know the, the the process itself, but also um, the, the you know the the, the clock and um, the the sort of human relationships. Well, it didn't help the negotiations. I think yes, okay, it slowed things down initially. It made things rather challenging, but we got on with it. There was actually not a huge amount of time wasted in the grand scheme of things, mostly because we didn't have time to waste. From the beginning, we didn't expect. A lot of dynamics before September. And so COVID came, of course, and as Dan said, it had a negative impact on, on negotiations, on also the interaction. Quality of interaction is always a bit different, of course, but by and large, no one, not many on our side expected huge breakthroughs before September when, when we started uh, these negotiations in March. So, so the most um, difficult points of the, of the second set of negotiations were the level playing field, uh, fisheries, governance, and, and dispute settlement. I, I just wondered if you could explain for each of those what was the issue for the EU, why did it matter so much to the EU, um, and how, in the end, the EU succeeded in, in um, safeguarding its interests in the agreement? Well, I think it depends on each of the subjects, in a way. If you take them one by one, you, you say governance and dispute settlement. Um, one issue there was of fundamental importance for the EU was the, the protection of data, so personal data and the standards for that and, and the protection of fundamental rights, which we had agreed with the UK uh, in the political declaration in the sense that the European Convention of Human Rights would be part of this uh, new international agreement, would be referred to and would also have standing in, in UK courts in terms of enforcement. And then the UK 
uh, in the first sessions that the U-turn on that basically and said we no longer want that. On the governance, it's more or less the same story where the UK said we don't want an overarching agreement. We want an agreement on energy and on fish and on, on transportation or on aviation, on aviation safety, uh, a free trade area, a security agreement and so on where we said, well, we, we on the EU side have agreed with the UK, we want an overarching agreement, so we can link then these issues in terms of dispute settlement. I think on the EU side, it was felt that we needed that in terms of, in case of violations of a title or, um, or a provision of the agreement, that we would then be able to retaliate or sanction another part of the agreement or cross, retaliate, cross suspend or, or do different things. And that was fundamental also for us. It was fundamental to have fisheries inside of that overarching agreement, and the UK ended up agreeing with that. The most important one was level playing field in terms of our request. We made it clear that at some point when the UK raised an idea that we could perhaps tolerate some tariffs on certain goods for less level playing field, that it was a no-go for us. And I think what we came then up with as a final solution is that we stressed more the unilateral side of retaliation, rebalancing, remedial measures, compensation, safeguard measures uh, to unilaterally respond in case the level playing field will be undermined by the UK, rather than have a collective system that is then managed and, and subject to the dispute settlement. I think those are really, really interesting points. I, I'm not absolutely sure they're, they're very well understood. Um, in in the UK at all because um, they are um, they're very they're very significant and um, we just did a report UK regulation after Brexit and we pointed out how many of these um, sort of mechanisms um, are at work or at play can be can be yeah, operationalized and how you know in that sense at least Brexit isn't done. A couple of uh, questions to wrap up. In the UK, some have called the EU's approach to the negotiations bureaucratic and have argued that areas of common interest have been left out of the agreement. I'll let you imagine which those might be. I wonder what your views are about that. Well, I disagree that it's bureaucratic. I mean, we just spoke about the level playing field, but I said, well, the mandate we had was, was what it was. And then we found some other kind of solution because of the UK resisting a number of issues. So I think we came up with all kinds of solutions to, to deal with a, an issue that we had not chosen for, which, which was Brexit. So uh, I don't think that um, qualifies as a bureaucratic or dogmatic behavior or theological behavior as so. I think um, it'll come as no surprise that I also don't think that we were bureaucratic during these negotiations. I mean, I, I'd be the first person to say that the EU uh, does unfortunately sometimes have um, that bureaucratic image from, from the past. But I think in the grand scheme of things, the Brexit negotiations was not the example of where the EU was bureaucratic. I mean, really, it, it was far from it. And I often noted sometimes when that label was thrown at us that we were being bureaucratic for whatever reason over the past four years, quite often it was just because we were defending our own interests. Um, on the second point, I think on what was left out in the agreement, I, people confuse something being left out with just the consequence of Brexit. If you leave the single market and you leave the customs union and you, you negotiate a deal uh, based on certain red lines, um, there are going to be consequences to that and no, nobody can fix those things unless you yourself decide to change your position. Thank you very much for the 
the response on bureaucratic behavior. <laughs> a final question, perhaps, I mean, looking, looking ahead now, how do you see the development of relations between the UK and the EU in the short term and uh, in the long term? It's hard to answer these questions because they depend, of course, on the political action that the UK will take. But if you look at the first two months, which is very, very brand new, of course, what happened uh, with the protocol is not 100% promising, if I put it mildly. So that will be one of the determining factors, I would think, in terms of EU-UK relations, because the EU, of course, will continue to show unity and solidarity there in terms of how the protocol is being implemented. Um, and if you move to the future, a lot will depend on what we just discussed with Hussein on the, the agenda of the Johnson government. Uh, is it about divergence? Is it about, you know, what is it about? And uh, what is Brexit about is a, is a more fundamental underlying question there in terms of the UK's national politics and policy. My hope would be that we can construct a positive cooperation agenda. Uh, there's the Climate Change Summit the UK is organizing this year. There is another number of other global challenges in terms of geopolitics as well. By all means, a rational approach would be that the, the UK strongly cooperates with the, with the EU, which I think uh, is in the interest of both. But um, for the moment, it doesn't look entirely promising, I would say, on, on that front. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.